Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Heart of Memphis. Heart of Memphis is a weekly podcast where we explore the contours of culture, arts, commerce, and faith here in the city of Memphis. The Heart of Memphis is brought to you by a partnership between Lux Creative and Lindenwood Christian Church. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this episode of The Heart of Memphis. We appreciate you taking the time to download our podcast. As always, if you haven't yet, subscribe to us on our podcasting your podcasting app of choice. Give us a rating and review. Let everybody know that you enjoy the stories that we tell, and we think we've got another good story to tell today. Diane, thank you so much for taking the time to come on our episode. We have our first uh, husband and wife team that have been here on this episode on on the on the heart of Memphis. Just take a second to introduce yourself, and uh, we're really glad that you're here. Well, thank you for having me. I'm Diane Vascovo, and I am a retired federal judge. I retired as from being a U.S. magistrate judge in May of 2020. I served 25 years on the bench. I was appointed in 1995. There was not much going on in May of 2020 when you retired. <laughs> it, was, it was a good time for me to retire. I had picked that time as my retirement date. Um, it coincided with my 65th birthday on May 4th, Star Wars Day, as I like to say. Yes. May the 4th be with you. At the time, we had been closed as a courthouse for two months, starting in March. All of my hearings were being conducted by Zoom. Every morning I would get up, put on my robe and my house shoes, and go sit in front of my computer. The marshals set up hearing rooms at the federal prison, at the federal detention center. They would bring in the defendants, the prisoners there, and we would conduct the hearings. So when my retirement came up, the other judges asked if I would consider staying on, and I said, no, I'm out of here. <laughs> I've had enough of this. I remember you've, you've shared this story with me before, but there were defendants that said, you got to get me out of here. It's terrible in here. And you're like, hey, it's not much better out here right now. <laughs> That's exactly right. I was became inundated with motions by the prisoners to be released, especially the pretrial detainees, because of covid and, and they had legitimate concern in the institutions, in the, in the penal system, because the COVID would go through the centers rapidly. It was uh, tough. Um, they wanted to be released. I didn't have a place to send them, mm-hmm. especially if they had been exposed to COVID. They, I had to detain them somewhere. I couldn't do home confinement because they couldn't go there. So, And I finally told them, I said, it's pretty bad out here, too. Nobody's going anywhere, so unfortunately, you'll have to stay there. I did make exceptions for certain people that had underlying medical conditions and were at a greater risk. Wow. We're going to tell a story about how wild this was and laugh, but I'm not quite there yet, but I'm getting close. Yes. <laughs> Uh, well, obviously, you um, have just recently retired from a distinguished legal career, but let's go back to the very beginning. Where are you from? What, what, where'd you grow up? Uh, what was life growing up for you, where you're from? Tell us a little bit about um, your family of origin and, and how you came to be. Well, I'm a native Memphian. All right. I was born and raised in Memphis. I'm second-generation native Memphian. Both of my parents were born and raised in Memphis. I have two sisters. Um, one is 13 months older than me. We were the traditional Irish, Irish twins. Irish twins, yes. And then my other sister was nine years younger. 
as my parents always said, I was the mistake, not the third one. <laughs> Who in their right mind would get pregnant with a four-month-old baby? So we uh, grew up here. I'm a product of the Memphis City Schools. I went to Willow Oaks Colonial Junior High and Overton, all neighborhood schools, all within walking distance of our home. Um, um, I would say faith and the church were big parts of our growing up. My family was Cumberland Presbyterian. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. Memphis Theological Seminary, right across the street, is Cumberland Presbyterian. We, we had Dr. Jody Hill, the new president of MTS, on a couple months ago. So, And I have spoken with him on the phone. He's a wonderful he person. Is. I really enjoyed talking with him. In fact, when my dad passed away a year and a half ago, I found a life insurance policy that he had left to Memphis Theological Seminary. Oh, wow. That led to my contact with uh, Reverend Hill. Yeah. Um, so every Sunday, we were at church most of the day. We went to Sunday school, then went to the church service. My mother always volunteered in the nursery and to keep what we called little church, which was the nursery for the, the preschoolers. Yes. So she would have her daughters assist. So many Sundays I was in the nursery, many Sundays I was in the preschool. We'd go home, have Sunday dinner. Mm-hmm. And then we'd go back at night for the Vesper service and for the youth group. So this, that was my life. Every Sunday, that's how we spent. And my parents eventually um, left the Cumberland Presbyterian Church and went to Bunton Presbyterian. Mm-hmm. And they stayed active members there still. I mean, they ran the church. They opened it. They had the keys to the church. They counted the money. They did the flowers. So... So with this very idyllic and traditional, you know, upbringing and home and education, you decide, hey, I think I'm going to enter the legal career. I'm going to begin a legal career. When, when did you first ponder, hey, I want, to, I want to get into the legal system. I, I want to become a lawyer. When, when did that light begin to come on to you? There was no one moment that it did. It just came naturally to me. My father was an attorney. Okay. And he um, practiced probate and estate work. And he practiced up until the time he died. He was still practicing at age 92. So my calling to the legal profession probably came about at the dinner table. Mm -hmm. He would talk about his cases, and I found them very interesting. And the law made sense to me. I enjoyed reading the cases and analyzing the cases and hearing about his cases. My other sisters went uh, to the medical profession. My older sister became a a pediatric oncology nurse at St. Jude, and my younger sister became a physical therapist. But I followed in my dad's footsteps and became a lawyer. So where did you um, continue your education? Where did you go to college and law school, and what was that journey like? Well, um, as I said, I lived in Memphis all my life, except for the three and a half years I went to college. I went to University of Virginia. So I graduated high school in 1973 and started UVA that year. Virginia, even though it was a state school, had only admitted men in 1970. So I don't consider myself a trailblazer necessarily, but 
there were very few women at the university when I went there. In fact, it was probably 25% women. And I thought to myself, why wouldn't I go there? Yeah. <laughs> These odds are great. You know, what, what better place for me to go? My parents had some concern about it, especially mm-hmm. when they found out that they were making the dorms co-ed. Oh. My mother did find out that one, they were keeping one dorm, just all girls, three floors, and somehow I ended up in that dorm. <laughs> Wasn't my choice, I I'm, will say. I bet that was not an accident. Yes, yes. So from after I graduated from the University of Virginia, I applied to law school. I graduated a semester early and decided to come back here to Memphis. I wanted to come and practice law in Memphis. It's lucky I got in Memphis because when I sent my applications, I mixed them up and I sent Vanderbilts to Memphis and Memphis to Vanderbilt. But apparently what I said was good enough and they both admitted me. What is it about Memphis and the legal community? I've only lived here over three years, just a little over three years, but even I, and it's not just John Grisham novels, it seems as if this is, this is a magnet for people that you know engage the law at, at a high level. And I don't mean just like, oh, I can get in front of the cameras and you know advocate mm-hmm. for my client. It seems as if this is quite a collection of legal minds that, that outpaces the size of our population. Does that sound accurate? Probably so, and I th- I think because we are, what I like to say, uh, a small town, big city. The legal community is very collegial, and it was a good place to practice. We didn't have the requirements like many big firms do in the big cities. We didn't, it wasn't a grueling pace. It was a a pleasant um, occupation and well-respected. So before you were appointed to the federal bench, what was your legal career like? What kind of law did you practice? What firms were you engaged in? Was that, was that rewarding work? I came back here to law school. Um, I served as the editor-in-chief of the Law Review. I made my law school career more difficult than it should have been because I had a baby my third year of law school. So... Uh, My oldest son, Stephen, was born on October 28th. I stayed home for two weeks, and then I started studying for the midterm exams, or the the semester exams. There were many nights that I was up with a baby in one arm and a law book in the other. I did manage to stay at the top of the class and and passed. And after that, uh, my first job as a lawyer was as a judicial law clerk for Judge Harry Welford. He was on the federal court district bench at the time. He was later elevated to the Sixth Circuit. And I respect him so much for hiring me. When I went to interview, I was pregnant. I don't think, I think he had had maybe one or two female law clerks before, but he had not had a mother and he had not had a, a pregnant woman come interview. But despite that, he did take a risk and hired me. So it's, it's quite fitting that my first job in the legal profession was in the federal court, and I ultimately retired from the federal court. In between, after that one year, it was a one-year appointment as a judicial law clerk, I went to work with my father and practiced with him for five years. He, he was a great role model. He was a great mentor, as was Judge Welford as, as well. I loved my dad's approach to, to law and to learning. Whenever I came in with a question, 
he always approached it in the old-fashioned, traditional way. Well, let's go look at the law books. <laughs> let's pull a book. Let's see what, if we can find the answer. He knew the answer. He wanted to make me learn how to find the answers. I stayed with him for five years, six years, and at that time in 1987, International Paper relocated their corporate headquarters to Memphis. And I was um, referred to the general counsel there as someone that um, they might want to look at to come on. I was hired as the associate litigation counsel. So I stayed there for five years. And at International Paper, I would travel around to many of the primary mills. I had my own hard hat. Most of our lawsuits originated at the paper mills. Got used to the smell of the paper mills. I don't know if you've ever been around them. Yes. I'd have to come home and wash all the clothes in my suitcase because it stayed with me. And then in 1992... um, I left and went back to private practice for three years and then was appointed in 1995. You made reference to, you know, I'm a female law student, top of the class, and I'm having a child while remaining at the top of the class. You know, I'm, I always, what I'm trying to always do at this point in my life is just have a posture of learning that my experience is a straight white guy is so much different than yeah. everyone else's and that you know, my, my joke is it's not a joke my what I've come to uh, appreciate what I've come to learn about myself is I've never had to wait in line every door should open to me and I showed up and you should just be thankful and give me the, the best opportunity you could give me you have entered into a in, in the heart of the deep south into a profession that has historically been run by men and and good old boys. Right. So what was it like entering into the legal community as a young, empowered female in a world that, you know, you went to UVA. Oh, they've been accepting women for three years. Yes. Oh, I'm ready to begin my legal, you know, journey here in Memphis where it is, it is, a new, it is new territory. You say you're not a trailblazer. You are clearly a trailblazer. <laughs> I don't it, see myself a, as one. I, I appreciate that. I respect that. What was it like being a, a young female lawyer in a man's world? Because you've told me some inappropriate was, things yes, <laughs> that yes. you bumped up against. There were the legal profession wasn't quite ready for women. They were learning how to accept women as lawyers. Um, so many things. My first appellate argument. One of the appellate judges, whom I'm very fond of, said. That was a mighty fine argument, little lady. That's what he called me. I would show up in the courtroom. They would say, oh, the court reporter sits over there. They thought I was the court reporter. My son's teachers thought I was a flight attendant when I worked for International Paper because I was always flying to one of the mills. And they they asked me, which airlines did I fly for? There... So many things, and this is something I don't tell very often, but one of the reasons I left International Paper was I found out that one of the other attorneys, who was male, who graduated a year after me in law school, started at the same time, was being paid $20,000 more than I was. And in 1992... 
that's quite a bit of money. Yes, it is. That was a big difference. And I approached them, and I said, I don't think this is right. And their response was, we had to pay more to get him than we did to get you. So I thought, I don't think I really want to be part of this environment anymore. So that's why I went back to private practice, which actually turned out to be a good move for me because it did uh, set me up to be in a position to apply to be the magistrate judge when that position came open in 1995. Well, let's transition to that. What what prompted that that application, and what was that process like? I'd, one of the things we that I've learned, we've talked with numerous people in the legal profession, I, I don't even know what a judge does. You know, you think like, oh, it's Judge Wapner. Or, you know, like, <laughs> oh, oh, like I know who John Roberts is, and I know who Judge Wapner was. And every, there's something in between, <laughs> you know, small claims court and the Supreme Court. So you you, you applied for this, and what, what made this role distinct from other um, opportunities on the bench that may have come your way? Well, uh, just by way of background, federal courts do both civil and criminal cases, as opposed to our judges in state court in Shelby County. Our judges in state court in Shelby County are either criminal court judges or civil court judges. We handle both. Most of our federal judges are what we call Article Three judges. If you remember your Constitution, Article Three of the Constitution is the judiciary. Magistrate judges and bankruptcy judges are referred to as Article I judges. Our positions were created by an act of Congress. The magistrate judge position was created in 1970. It was difficult to get new judgeships approved through Congress, but what they did was pass this act to create a new level of judges, the bankruptcy judges and the magistrate judges, to assist the Article III judges, the district judges. Magistrate judges, we like to say, are merit appointees, not political appointees. So, so what's the difference between those two well, things? Well, your Article Three judges are appointed by the president with Senate approval. So you have to go through the Senate confirmation hearings, and most of the votes go along party lines. And whatever uh, president is in office, it's usually his party uh, that gets that makes the appointment. Um, bankruptcy judges and, and magistrate judges go through a merit selection process where we have to submit our resumes. It's um, a competitive position. We have to do writing samples. We go through a series of interviews. And the Article Three judges select the magistrate judges. And we are appointed for eight-year terms. Uh, Article Three judges are appointed for life. Mm-hmm. Uh, magistrate judges are subject to reappointment after um, a comment period for the public, and then a panel reviews it and decides whether to reappoint. Our position makes 92% of the salary of the district judge. And I like to say that we have, it's, it's a perfect position. We don't do all the things the district judges do. Primarily, we don't do the felony criminal trials and sentencing. Mm. So it's well worth that 8% differential, in my opinion. So I was aware of the position. It was created in 1970, and then I clerked in the federal court in 1980. At that time, we only had um, two magistrate judges, and those two served out their 20, 25 years. So the position didn't come open very often. 
And when my predecessor, um, Judge Aaron Brown, retired in 1994 after serving his, uh, three eight-year terms, I was aware the, of the position and it came open. So I applied for that. And I was actually was the first female magistrate judge. I was the, the third magistrate judge under the Magistrate Judges Act in our district. Actually, I was the fourth because the Western District of Tennessee encompasses Jackson and Memphis. So we had a magistrate judge in Jackson. And so I was the fourth to come on and the first female. Wow. Again, I'm not a trailblazer. <laughs> and yet you no. are. No. <laughs> All right, so what, if, what are some interesting cases that you um, had brought before you as, as a federal judge? I'm always fascinated by, you know, the particularities of the law, what, what, what generates something to be brought um, before you. What are some fascinating cases? Because I Googled your lawsuit, I mean, the cases that were brought to you. There were some interesting things. Um, you'll find quite a bit if you yeah. go online. Yes, <laughs> you I- will. The one I, I think I told you I'm so glad that's not online anymore was when I presided over what we call the topless club cases in Memphis in the late 90s when um, Larry Parrish decided to close down the topless clubs. So when you Googled me, it would have my picture and topless clubs. <laughs> so that's not showing up anymore, which is great. We are grateful yes, for that. Yes, yes. So let me back up for a minute. So uh, one of the more interesting cases I handled when I was working for my dad was representing the estate of Elvis Presley. Oh, wow. My, my dad was a probate lawyer and an estate lawyer, and he was actually hired by the estate to sue the Mid-South Coliseum. When Elvis Presley died in 1977, he had a five-city concert tour scheduled. Memphis was one of the tours, one of the concerts scheduled. He died before those concerts took place. Most of the ticket holders did not turn their tickets in for a refund. They kept them as memorabilia. The Coliseum, though, kept the money. So the estate of Elvis Presley filed suit against the Coliseum in all five locations, and we represented the estate here. And we were seeking refund of the unrefunded ticket sale proceeds, uh, saying that it's an asset of the estate. We ultimately lost in, in Memphis. Um, the state of Tennessee intervened and claimed it was money that belonged to the state as unclaimed property. The estate won in all other four locations. We just lost in Memphis. Oh, wow. So I still have my Elvis ticket, though. <laughs> I didn't turn mine in. So on the bench, there were, there were many. I'll tell this story because this was interesting. As a magistrate judge, anyone accused of a, a charge with a federal crime first appears before the magistrate judge for an initial appearance and arraignment. And we go over the indictment and the charges. We decide whether to release them on bond or detain them. So in this particular day... I was reading the indictments to one of the defendants, and I'm reading it, and I said, you know, you're charged with credit card fraud. You're charged with using the credit card of Diane Vescovo. I said, that's, that's me. So Marvin Ballin was representing her, and she's pulling on Marvin's sleeve at the time. And I said, 
I don't think I should preside over this case. You stole my credit cards. So that was doesn't happen very often, but that's how this city is. Yes. You run across those. Um, I had cases, um, you know, some some interesting ones, but not very pleasant ones. So on the criminal side in federal court, we get the big um, drug trafficking organizations. We get gangs and guns. Um, we get child pornographers. We get uh, the sex trafficking cases, child sex trafficking. Um, I had one, and it was actually a, a young woman who herself had been a victim of child sex trafficking and then became a sex trafficker. And she was so angry, so mad. She bit the marshals. She was spitting at everybody. We have to be concerned about the safety of our U.S. marshals. They could have uh, sexually transmitted diseases. So I ordered a spit mask put on her. And they brought her in the courtroom, and she was yelling at me and screaming, and she said she couldn't breathe. And I finally told her, I said, ma'am, as long as you can yell and scream at me, you're breathing. So she finally settled down, so got that taken care of. Um, I had um, State Senator John Ford when he was arrested on the Tennessee Waltz case, Mm -hmm. um, bribery cases. when an interesting one I had was um, Logan Young. Logan Young was an Alabama booster. He um, was charged with paying money to... Um, Albert Means. Albert Means. Yes. Yes, Albert Means. Albert That's Means. exactly right. Yes. And... Went to Tresvin High School. Yes. Yes. And the coach over yes. there, too, to get him to go to Alabama. And as part of that case... Um, there was a big issue about tapes that uh, Coach Phil Fulmer at UT had made. And then the NCAA had some tapes. So I ordered that the NCAA and Coach Fulmer had to turn over those tapes to uh, Logan Young's attorney. I became a big hero of the University of Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> Next thing I know, they're talking about me on football talk shows. Oh, I have no Paul Feinbaum show probably yes. was celebrating you. Yes. Yeah. Um, then I had, um, staying with the Elvis tradition, I had a case of a woman who claimed she was the true Lisa Marie Presley. And she was the daughter of Elvis and Priscilla, who had been sent over to Sweden to live when she was a baby. So she was making a claim to against the Elvis Presley Enterprises. So that was quite interesting. What do you do, a DNA test? Yeah. What? <laughs> we tried to get one. Oh, yes. my goodness. Yes. Um, uh, most recently, right before I retired, I was involved in the dispute between the um, city and Elvis Presley Enterprises, which also involved the lease at the FedEx Forum. Mm-hmm. And I had many, many hearings on that and made many rulings, on, mostly on the, the discovery matters at that time. Then probably I would say the, the gem in my crown would be the Arlington Developmental Center cases. I, I be, became one of the primary mediators in federal court, 
I felt like a negotiated result is better than a, a decision. And so we implemented um, mediation programs. One year, I did, I think it was 112 mediations, and that's in addition to my normal workload. So I would start mediations in the morning at 9, have them go to 1 o'clock, and then I'd start another one and go to 5 or 6 in the afternoon to get that done. But the Arlington Developmental Center, you're probably not familiar with it, but it was basically an institution for the intellectually disabled, developmentally dis- disabled. Mm-hmm. And this, the federal government state, the federal government came in and wanted to shut it down. So we had, I had people from Washington coming in. I had the state officers coming in. We mediated this for over a year. We set up two days every month to all come together, and we were able to resolve it and set up group homes. So we moved the residents to the group homes, and it was, it was quite an achievement in my mind. Yeah. I appreciate your attempt to, to mediate that together rather than it, a, a top-down decision that may make no one happy. Right. I, I appreciate that. Right. There's something about life in that that I think we could yes. all learn from. Yeah, I learned early on that basically in the courtroom, I'm going to make one person happy and one person unhappy. But generally in my rulings, I don't make everybody happy. Yes. <laughs> if I was able to resolve it outside of litigation and get people to understand each other's perspective and reach a negotiated resolution, most of the time, everybody went away happy. Either they were equally happy or they were equally mad. Yeah. <laughs> so there was no winner or loser at that point. Uh, well, in drawing our conversation to a close, when you think about the life that you've lived here in Memphis, aside from the three and a half in Charlottesville, what do, what do you love about this city? I mean, you're, you're a lifelong Memphian. What do you love about Memphis? There's, there's so much to love about Memphis, and I am a big proponent of Memphis. We have St. Jude Hospital. We have FedEx. We have the Civil Rights Museum. We have Graceland, the second most visited home in the United States, second only to Jefferson's home of Monticello. There's so much to be proud of. I like the people, the attitudes. It's like I said earlier, it's a small town, big city. I can go anywhere, or maybe I can't go anywhere without knowing somebody. Yeah. Anywhere I go, we run into somebody that we know. And people are friendly. They're friendlier here than most places. One of my law clerks went and applied for a position up in New York with a federal judge there. I talked to the federal judge, and they said, oh, we love her, but... We think she's too friendly. We're afraid she'll talk to people about the cases. And I said, no, she's just from the South. Yep. That's just how she is. She will respect the confidences. You don't have to worry about that. Oh, I have to throw this in yeah. because um, my husband and I, between us, we have nine grandchildren. So I did ask uh, my grandchildren the other day, a couple of them, what they liked about Memphis, yeah. and they wanted me to make sure I mentioned their names. Go for it. So, Trace Vescovo, my oldest grandson, said the thing he loved most about Memphis was Gibson Donuts. <laughs> <laughs> and then Kellen Vescovo, 
my younger ones said what he loved most about Memphis was basketball. Between the Tigers and the Grizzlies, I, I can't argue with that. Right, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yes. I would put Gus's fried chicken up there myself, right. but I'm a little biased. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. This I learned so much in all of these conversations, but I, I learned so much about you and just your story, and I just am so grateful that you took the time to be with us on this episode. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Heart of Memphis. I hope that you have enjoyed this conversation. Feel free to give us a rating and a review and share this story on your social media feed. Thank you so much.